0: .NET Rocks Episode 753 with guests Brian Hunter and OJ Reeves. Recorded live Friday, March 16th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.NET, training developers to work smarter and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at
1: franklins.net And now here are Carl and Richard Thank you very much and welcome back to Rocks It's Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell We're getting functional today Woohoo Woohoo But before we do that, let's roll Better Know a Framework I love it
2: what do you got for me today, Mr. So Franklin? Kelly,
1: my wife's transcribing and she uh, the shows and she's like, "You and Richard never banter anymore." And I said, "Well, we like to banter, but about stuff that everybody else can appreciate too, not just about." <laughs> well, We got the geek out shows for really heavy banter too. Well, those are banter shows, right? And aren't
2: they really? So yeah. in some ways, we're just we're you we're saving it up for once a month.
1: <laughs> I
2: like it. You like? I that? like the way you think, Mr. Yeah. Campbell. Well, and you know what Thursday's show is. Yeah. The Solar Power the Show. Solar Power Show. Yeah, I got my notes. I've been working hard on this. It's awesome, my friend. Awesome. Just uh,
1: search for geek out in the yes. in the archives, and you'll find all of them. All right, better know framework. Right. So So, I went looking for a blog post uh to see who's talking about, you know, functional.net which is mm-hmm. sharp. Yeah, of course. Mostly our good friend Dustin Campbell. Ah, from diditwith.net. Which is kind of funny because wasn't Mark Miller's blog Do It with And didn't Dustin Campbell used to work with Mark Miller? That's right. Hmm. There hmm, might be a relationship uh? there. Perhaps. Well anyway, if you go to tinyurl.com slash nullable F sharp, you'll get Dustin's uh, recent recent blog post called Writing F sharp type extensions for nullable. And here's what he says. A type extension is F-sharp syntax for augmenting an existing type with new members, similar in spirit to C-sharp and VB's extension methods. I employ type extensions to make life a bit easier when working with .NET libraries from F-sharp. For example, I might make system.io.stream.readbyte a bit more natural to use from F-sharp by writing a type extension. And he goes on to show how to do that in F-sharp. And the function captures the semantic of the int returned by stream read byte, which might be either an unsigned byte or minus one when at the end of a stream. In F sharp, this semantic is easily represented as an option and then more easily consumed by other F sharp codes. So he goes down uh to talk about nullable, how it's declared with two generic constraints, a struct constraint and a default constructor constraint. However, that's not quite enough to make the F sharp compiler happy. Hmm. F-Sharp expects a type constraint to System.ValueType as well, so three constraints are needed to declare a type extension for Nullable, and he actually shows the code. And if you're interested in that, go to tinyurl.com slash NullableFsharp, and that's sharp spelled out, not F pound sign. That'd be silly. That's against the rules. It is against the rules. Mr. Campbell... Who's talking to us?
2: I grabbed a comment off of show number 745, which was the one we did with Jason Kazor about using HTML5 in SharePoint. Awesome show. And uh, let me take on a name that needed to buy a vowel. Mm. Okay. Because the, the first five three letters are H R V. Oh, man. Yeah. Okay.
1: Uh,
2: let's say. It doesn't uh, work in English. Roj Mark. So, Roj Mark says. Uh, hi, guys. Uh, nice episode again, as usual. Hits the point, and that exactly is the reason I'm commenting here and for the first time, but I've been a long time fan of the show. I'd like to emphasize a few key points mentioned in the episode because they're so important and need to be said in every kickoff meeting or any time when a SharePoint project is being considered, and I've been involved in a couple of these myself. Those little quote truths of best practice seem simple enough and one would expect that everyone is aware of it, but in reality, not everyone actually is. Of course, it should be noted that any all-around developer probably knows these are not SharePoint-specific facts but are related to software development in general, but let's just stick to SharePoint for now. Great stuff that's been said here is this. SharePoint is not Repeat, not meant to be customized by developers. It is meant to be consumed by IT professionals, business analysts, IT managers, actual end users. So this should help a developer when faced with a SharePoint adjustment slash customization demand. Less is more is true here as well, especially with tools available in SharePoint 2010. Microsoft itself states the order of customization. Number one, do it inside the browser if you can. Number two, if in-browser customization is enough, use the SharePoint designer. Number three, if all else has failed, use Visual Studio. Mm. Another good thing to emphasize, there is no silver bullet, period. SharePoint is not an exception to this rule. It will not satisfy all your collaborative or document management or publishing corporate needs. This should be strongly reinforced both to clients and project managers within the organization. The blog post mentioned on the show is a great example of the plain and simple pros and cons list that should be read by everyone involved in the SharePoint project in order to gain the big picture overview and avoid common pitfalls and keep up with the good work. We will. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And actually, you know, funny, we've got a lot of comments on the SharePoint show because we have not done SharePoint for a while. And let's face it, besides Outlook, what other product do we harass as much as SharePoint?
1: (laughs) Yeah, It's only because we're jealous of the money you're all making. (laughs) (laughs) What did What were we saying over beers the other day? Or
2: was it scotch the other day? I didn't need my soul anymore, so I started developing in SharePoint. Is that what I said? Uh,
1: You may have said that. I might have
2: said that. And that's unnecessarily harsh. But uh, thanks so much for your uh, great comment. And I'm happy to send you a mug. And uh, hopefully you will contact me back to tell me how to actually pronounce your name. And if you would like a mug, you can write a comment on the website at dot
1: thanks and as long as we're in apology mode for gratuitous insults toward sharepoint we should uh, clarify that we did not mean to infer that it was difficult or even impossible to to style a sharepoint site um, when i was doing the the uh, sharepoint videos with sahil he showed a site that you could i mean you, there's a sharepoint look right right out of the right. box Oh no this was this was a website that did not look anything like that standard look. It was completely CSSified and and just styled up the wazoo. so so it is true. Uh, you can make a SharePoint site look like anything.
2: Hey, Hawaiian Airlines there you go. Hawaiian Airlines, believe it or not, SharePoint site. You'd never know it to look at it. But under the hood, you know, if you look at the URLs, you can you see certain things that say SharePoint in them. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, absolutely, you can style a sign. And I don't know how we may have messed that up, but you know, it's absolutely well, We probably true. just
1: made a flip joke, that's all.
2: Wouldn't it be the first time. Because they all look
1: the same, mostly. Doesn't mean that they can't, but most of them do. All right. So anyway, before we uh, bring on our guests, I want to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have nearly 200 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts, probably more than 200 by now. They release 8 to 10 new courses every month and offer a 10-day free trial with 200 minutes of access to their vast library. Pluralsight offers a wide range of developer training courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack. Try Pluralsight today. Subscriptions start at just $29 a month. And you know what? Pluralsight is proud to support .NET Rocks. And thanks so much for that. Thank you, Pluralsight. Awesome. A lot of our guests uh, do classes for Pluralsight. They're, they're the place to go. Mm-hmm. Hey, Richard, it's almost time for NDC. Oh, yes, the Norwegian Developers Conference. It's coming up here in June, June 6th to 8th, with pre-conference workshops June 4th and 5th. Where do you see the roster? The cost is $2,000 US. Which is 10,900 kroner. And you can see a list of speakers if you go to ndcoslo.com slash speaker. I know you and I will be there. We will be. We'll be recording shows like Mad like we always do. It's one of the best speaker
2: rosters of any conference or anywhere in the world, and it's not a huge show. If you really want to get a chance to sit and chat with a guy like Errol or uh, Dan
1: North, this is your best shot. It's a great show for that. Ndcoslo.com. Uh, We're talking with Brian Hunter and OJ Reeves today. Brian is a C Sharp and Erlang developer, a Microsoft MVP in C Sharp and a founding partner of the Nashville-based custom software shop Firefly Logic. O.J. Reeves currently runs a small software consultancy called Functional I.O. in Brisbane, Australia, where he does a mixture of work including .NET, Erlang, and C++ on Windows and Linux. He was also one of the minds behind Corrugated Iron, the .NET client for React. Welcome, guys. Hey, thank thank you. you. This
0: uh, This is Brian. I'm the one without the Australian accent.
1: Thank you for clarifying, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Erlang. It's been a while since we talked functional in general, and it's been even longer since we talked about Erlang. I think it was with Don Syme we were sort of stepping into Erlang development. Um, and I believe I did a DNR TV with Venket Subramaniam on Erlang a long time ago. While, while you guys are talking, I'm going to go see if I can find that link.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Uh, one of the things that's interesting is how much you all end up talking around Erlang <laughs> like uh so many of the the guests that you have on there like I'm like ooh ooh Erlang when I'm listening to you guys so uh a, a lot of the topics uh are are solved very well uh, uh, by the, by by Erlang the language and the in the in the platform uh but uh how how would you like us to jump in would you want us to just talk about maybe what what it's, what it is or what it's good at. And yeah, then let's start at the beginning
2: because form- I'm trying to figure out how <laughs> okay. it fits into our conversations.
1: And before you do that, I found it. It is Venkat Subramaniam on DNR TV and showing you Erlang. If you want to take a look at the syntax, it's tinyurl.com slash DNR TV Erlang, E R L A N G. All right. What is it?
0: Okay. Well, so there's this one thing that I, I guess out of your audience, there's going to be just a small fraction that have even heard of Erlang. Uh, and uh, this gets me just really excited and I'm kind of tickled about the whole idea because Erlang isn't just some other language out there. It's not a, not a, a hyped thing. It's something that's been around for a long time and solves a whole set of problems better than any other tool set solves that set of problems. Uh, it's not for everything, uh, uh, but interestingly it forms a great complement with C Sharp, uh, you know, with the .NET stack, I think. And, and uh, OJ and I are both sort of on this mission right now, where we we're, he's been doing the same thing in, in Australia that I've been doing here, and that's where we go around and just let people know about Erlang, because all you have to do is just kind of say what it is, and when people realize, they're like, wow. Uh, and so where there is no marketing department for Erlang, it's this open source language that's been out uh, for, for quite a while. Uh, we, we're trying to at least act like one, at least in the, in the, in, in the .NET community where, where we're at. And that, that's how OJ and I actually ran into each other is on Twitter. We sort of realized across uh, the, the hemisphere that uh, it's like, hey, that guy's doing what I'm doing.
1: <laughs> now, I, I remember back in the days of .NET 1.0 and the beta that one of the main selling features of .NET was that it supports all languages, right? And Erlang, I believe, might have been on that list. But did, that just means that there was some open source or available implementation of Erlang, whether it was complete or not. But it was, was it available even way back then?
0: Well, it so, was, so Erlang was developed high. back in the 80s at, at Ericsson, it, but it was open sourced in 98. I mean, was, uh, it, ava-
1: so was it available on, in .NET 1.0, in Visual Studio 1.0?
0: Uh, well, see. So, Erlang is not a .NET language. It doesn't run on the CLR. It doesn't use the .NET framework. It's its own standalone thing. And so, uh, I guess we could start off with just a just a quick, you know, what is this thing? Uh, and that that might help clear uh, uh, clear things up a bit. Um, so, you can look at Erlang as these sort of three parts. There's a language, then there's this framework part, and then there's the Erlang runtime system. And so, Erlang the language. Uh, you know, languages are languages, and if uh, if we were just talking about the language part of it, it wouldn't be that compelling. Like, you know, some people get really excited, and, and they do get excited about languages. People talk about how great Ruby is, or how great uh, Python is, or you know, different things. People, you know, languages are all beautiful in their ways, but when it just comes down to if they're doing the same thing, it's like, well, just pick one you like, and uh, and hopefully it'll it'll uh, you know serve you well. But it's when we get away from just the language itself, so Erlang is the language is a functional programming language it's a dynamic programming language and it grows out of an odd tap root uh it doesn't come out of the c path it doesn't come out of from basic it 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 grows out of prolog, which even fewer people have heard of prologue I'm sure that have heard of erlang uh in in the audience uh so but it so it has this odd heritage uh which it's been a plus and a minus for the adoption of Erlang. Uh, uh, it, it 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 looks different, so it scares people the first time they see it, and it takes about a week and a half of writing Erlang before you internalize the syntax. After that, it's just natural. But it does get some superpowers from Prolog. So that's kind of the language wrap up. Uh, there's also this, the framework part I was talking about, which is, um, uh, is maybe a kind of a weird way of putting it. Our Erlang developers might think that was sort of a funny way of saying, but at least it's it's sort of a parallel of, uh, OTP is its name, the Open Telecom Platform, but you could look at it as a peer of, say, the .NET framework plus patterns and practices and, uh, and guidance. You know, the way you do things. <laughs> it's sort of, uh, uh sort of uh, in, in that space. Then the third, like when you you sort of set up this uh, language and framework, this third thing out there, the Erlang runtime system, the automatic assumption is, oh, okay, this is the here are the CLR. And I, I even thought that up until like a year and a half ago, and it hit me really hard that I was wrong. This is, and this is the magic part, I think, of Erlang. Uh, the the Erlang runtime system is less like a language runtime and more like an operating system.
1: Hmm. And. Wow. Okay. Before you go on, there is it portable across different platforms?
0: Yes. Uh, so, so you can uh, Erlang. You can pull down. You can Erlang runs equally well on Linux, on Windows, on uh, on Mac. I've ran it on Windows eight. The the first drop of Windows eight that went out. I installed everything. Worked just great there. Uh, so it, it runs. It runs on Windows, uh, the same uh, 64-bit Windows, 32-bit Windows. It works. It works the same everywhere. Wow. And so, uh, so that's really cool. Uh, but you've got this this thing that's like I was saying this odd this odd thing to say. It's more like an operating system than a language runtime, and you know people kind of raise their eyebrows on that one. But uh, but what it does, you you think about. The, the the job of of what it is to write a language runtime and it's pretty significant, right?
1: Sure. Oh, yeah, huge. Oh, yeah.
0: But if you compare that to actually taking on the job of writing an operating system, you know that's that's an even bigger job and it's a, a harder core problem to take on. And so that that's the thing; it's like kind of nutty when you think about what they've done here. But this operating system isn't a general-purpose operating system like Windows. You you can't run... I mean, it, it, you know, you write a general-purpose operating system, you have to support Excel or spreadsheets, and you have to support uh, web browsers and web servers and video games and a hundred other things, and you have to support multiple users doing things at the same time and and UI and windowing and, you know, just a ton of things and file I.O. and, and network. Uh, but if, if instead, what you did is you said... What we want to do is we want to build an operating system that supports one programming language. And we want that operating system to be very, very good, better than anything else out there at solving the problems of building reliable systems, having massive concurrency, and very simple, easy distribution. And those were your goals. And you could take that set of goals and you could enforce whatever you needed to on the language. You could put whatever sort of constraints you wanted to needed to on the developers. It's still a tough problem, but it's a much more doable problem than an operating system, normal operating system. So if you were to look at the Erlang runtime system, um, so the CLR, for example, uh, you know place by place, there's a thin sort of it has there's sort of a thin layer of code between it. And the underlying OS, right? You know, you do file IO, you're you know, pretty quickly dropping down underneath it into C and then, you know, and you're you're talking to the metal. Um, with uh Erlang, parts of the operating system, the Erlang runtime system, uh are thin like that, like file IO, there's not a whole stack there, but you move over to these things I mentioned that were the sweet spots, so around concurrency distribution and reliability, and there's an entire stack of things that aren't present. And, and things like the CLR or the JVM. They're these, th- this, this massive f- set of stuff that wasn't just sort of hacked together and thrown together, but this was the whole point of its existence. <laughs> uh, so, uh, this, this language was, was built out of, uh, Ericsson in the 80s. It's when Joe Armstrong, Mike Williams, and Robert Verding, uh, uh, were building this thing at Ericsson, the giant Swedish telecom. Right. And they have, Serious, serious needs there. You need to be able to have things that don't fail, uh, for one. I don't know if you – back then, anyway, people expected their phone to work. <laughs> yeah. You know, people – you know, you pick up a phone and you, you – there wasn't – I mean, the idea of it not working was crazy. I mean, even – I remember as a kid when the when a tree would fall down and knock on a power line or something weird would happen uh, or something would go wrong, a squirrel would – we would pick up our telephone – and call the power company to tell them. <laughs> you your telephone would work.
1: And Brian, testament to the fact that that phones work really, really well is the fact that we're using it right now because <laughs> huh, VoIP sounds like this. And Skype sometimes sounds like this. <laughs> but the <laughs> well, that phone, think, even point. though it's a small bandwidth, uh, you know, sound, it's... It's damn reliable, and that's why we've used them all these years.
0: Yep. And so, you know, the call we're making right now is actually going through some Erlang somewhere. It's an interesting, uh, you know, thing is the big switches uh, that are out there, a lot of the code is written in Erlang that's underneath those. That's cool. Uh, uh, but if you, if you move over to something like uh, even a lot of the stuff that we're using day-to-day is using Erlang. We'll jump into some of that a bit later, but I, I'll kind of... Uh, finish up about this os thing so there's this massive set of stuff around uh concurrency uh where you know there are major abstractions between what the developer deals with and what we as c sharp or c developers are used to dealing with and around distribution it, it is amazingly simple and reliability it's just hard to believe the sort of stats you get out of these things and and but these are holistic and so you see different uh different solutions come along to try to solve a part of this problem. You know, there are lots of things that come along and they follow the the sort of actor pattern or this way of having, you know, big concurrency. So in F-Sharp, you get the mailbox processor. And then uh, in, in the task parallel library stuff, we you know, th- there's ways of solving having lots and lots of concurrency. But here, you know, that's one piece of the whole thing. And it, it's sort of, you, you get a lot more out of the sum of the parts, you know, yeah. than, than the sum of the parts. And uh, so so that's this kind of high-level introduction, at least to the parts. Uh, OJ, uh, what what did I leave out? Or what do what you think? <laughs> no, I, I think you gave pretty decent coverage. There's there's one point that, that um,
3: you mentioned in there that I'd like to just re-emphasize. And that is that, that Erlang did not come out of academia. It came out of the commercial world. So it's quite often to hear uh, the response from people who have never heard from it before. Being who uses this and why haven't I uh, heard of it before now? The answer is that it's been niche for quite a long period of time, but the whole time it has been in existence, it's been in production and it's being battle hardened. And so it and, is and a the, really the, viable technology.
2: And your point being, this came from out of Ericsson, who was building the telecommunications infrastructure that an awful lot of the world still runs on.
3: Absolutely, yeah. including Australia. <laughs>
0: <laughs> just that i throw that in and, uh, the, the inter- there's a there's sort of an interesting well it's a really interesting story I don't know if uh, uh, I don't know if it's interesting enough to make it uh, to keep it off the cutting room floor but uh, uh, but so uh, the, this language that was built in Erickson in the 80s uh, you know they, they were coming along they were building it up on top of Prolog they were doing all this stuff and as a research project uh, it wasn't it wasn't just throwaway research because, you know, companies like that are all focused on, on the goal at hand. And so it was aiming at these things that, that switches needed. And in 95, um, there had been a series of failures around this next generation of switches that they're trying to build at Ericsson. And they, they realized they just couldn't do this and see. I mean, the prob, it was, it wasn't working. And so they, in 95, this research language got picked to be the thing that they were going to write their flagship product in, this thing that was going to be become the AXD301 uh, switch. And uh, when it was released three years later with a million lines of Erlang code, uh, it went out and it worked. And it worked incredibly well. It, 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 there are numbers out there where it achieved nine nines of uptime.
2: Nine nines. Wow. Nine nines. Yeah. And so
0: this is like a level you never hear anyone talk about. This is like... Like twenty milliseconds a year yeah, downtime geez. or something like that. I mean, it's like it's like you know, it's like you know, it's basically like we're not going to bother adding a tenth one. <laughs> well, <I'll> just say <laughs> yeah. Probably, you know,
2: at twenty milliseconds, your measurement tools for downtime aren't good enough. That's right,
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, right. right. You know, it, it's 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 so impressive, and and so um, the thing that happened to Derrickson that that is even funnier uh, uh, than than this sort of jaw drop kind of number like this was. After it went out, they'd realized uh, what they had done. They they were counting on this proprietary language, and so they decided they were going to kill it. <laughs> and they're going to kill Erlang and try to figure out if they could backport it into C uh and, and handle that. And, and so they, they finally came to their senses and realized, no, it would make a lot more sense for us to open source this language. Hmm. And so they open sourced the language in 98, and... You know, there are these case studies that came out, you know, people knew what had happened at Ericsson. You know, people that dig into that kind of thing. Uh, they had heard about this and some of the people there, you know, they, you know, developers talk to developers. And so, uh, after it was open sourced, uh, you know, it started to make it into the wild. Uh, you started seeing, um, it appear in things. And so, you know, I, I bet you every day, uh, um, you're using Erlang. Uh, you know, Facebook chat is written in Erlang. What? Uh, Really? Yes. And so, yeah, the Facebook chat, uh, the GitHub backend, the the back, uh, the, the GitHub daemon, it's written in Erlang. Uh, uh, Amazon, they use Erlang for quite a few things, including SimpleDB, uh, T-Mobile. Every time you send an, uh, SMS message, it's going through Erlang. So, you know, Yammer, Yahoo, Electronic Arts, uh, CouchDB is written in Erlang, RabbitMQ is written in Erlang. You know, you've got over and over. And then REOC, uh, this, you know, uh, high, amazing key-value store out from Basho and uh, uh, written in, in Erlang. So it's over and over, it's out there. Uh, and so it's sort of proven in all these places. When you get into these problems that where, where you can't solve it with other tools, people keep on stumbling up and they're like, "Ah, oh, all the reading says I need to learn about Erlang. <laughs> and so it's an interesting thing where you've got this language that has been around, started development in 86 and was released open source in 98, but it's going to be more relevant in 10 years than it was 10 years ago. And so it's, it's because the problem set that we're facing in the future is more aligned with what it solves so well. And it's 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 it's, it's an interesting thing to be able to talk to so many listeners right now, and, and all of a sudden these sort of light bulbs are going on, and they're realizing, huh, there's this thing out there that, that solves a lot of these things that so are, are so irritating to solve now. Like every time I uh, every time I see a mutex, every time I, you know I, I want to you know you know choke up, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a whole every time I do. Uh, uh, you what, know, what are use, we saying uh, here? Are we yeah. saying
2: friends don't let friends protect memory. Oh. <laughs>
0: So, uh, <laughs> so you, you've got this, you know. So this is a sort of big, grand, upfront thing, and I, I guess we could talk about, you know, like what's actually going on here, because yeah, you know, right now you've had I, like this, just sort of glowing, high level thing.
1: Yeah, I think you've established street cred. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik JustCode. If you're like me, you're probably using some productivity add-on in Visual Studio to check, refactor, and test your code. But how would you like to get a complete list of your solution's errors on the fly as you type, and not just for the opened files? The new kit on the block, JustCode, does just that for all supported .NET languages as well as JavaScript. It's like having a compiler running all the time, only that JustCode is faster and requires less CPU time. One area where JustCode is definitely better is performance. The tool provides the fastest code analysis and better performance without slowing down Visual Studio. Another reason to try it is JavaScript support. It'll help you read, navigate, and refactor your JavaScript code better than you've ever imagined. Learn more about the features JustCode offers and download a trial at telerik.com JustCode. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks.
2: How is it solving this problem that all these other languages are fumbling so badly on?
0: Okay. So, so the, some of the things the come one. from it being a, a functional programming language. Right. So, but just being a functional programming language doesn't necessarily yield these benefits, uh, because there are a lot of functional programming languages that can't make these claims, right? But, but Erlang is so pragmatic and the people behind it, they were so focused on the task that what they did is they said, you know, if we're going to put a constraint on a developer, if we're going to make them follow functional programming, uh, we're going to make them follow that paradigm, you know, if we're going to put structure around them and cause, uh, and add constraints, we're going to make sure that that's like, it gives them a mechanical advantage. <laughs> so you think of like levers, uh, like, uh, so if, if you have a, con- you have something there, you want to make sure that it's actually paying for itself, you know, to make sure it's not just decoration. Uh, uh, so, so there's quite a few constraints in on the language. Uh, it being a functional language, one of the things is, is immutability is really taken seriously in mm-hmm. our lang. Mm-hmm. So you assign a variable and it's assigned it keeps that value. You, there's no reassignment. Uh, and this is, you can't turn this option off. There's no sort of violating it. At the point you violate that, so this is a sort of the problem where F sharp is right now. As you, you know, by default, things are immutable. Right. But it's not guaranteed. Right. So the CLR team, they can't take advantage of that. They can't take advantage of the fact that you're, the developers out there are being Disciplined, and they're they're following this paradigm that's possibly you know, a lot of people consider it more difficult. It's really questionable when you when you look at it. It's long term. It's easier, uh, but uh, it's easier to solve hard problems, and you know it might be not the language to solve easy, scripty kind of problems. Mm-hmm. But uh,
2: well, you know, uh, you think about the list of projects you just produced. All of those projects are are totally back-end oriented. This is a server. It sounds like a server language to me, not a client language.
0: Right. That, that, that's... You, you hit it. I mean, you're not... Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you could, I guess, have this down on... On small devices, I, I don't know what benefit. Yeah, uh, there might be use cases for it that I haven't thought of. So, I don't, out of ignorance, I wouldn't want to say. Well, now that never makes sense. And, and, <laughs> but, and let's
2: just be—you know—you can always do something dumb with any tool you want to do. So let's try <laughs> and focus I, I've on that.
0: Many, many times. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. Uh, that's that's was um, Kate Gregory's line. C It's your foot.
0: It's your foot. <laughs> <laughs> right. I love it. And, and, So, uh, off these constraints, another constraint that's pushed in on the language is, uh, if you have two processes, uh, those processes can only talk to each other through message passing, right? and all the messages are copies. There's no passing references around. Yes. Okay, so I just mentioned this term process, and everyone out there is thinking like a Windows process or a Linux process, a big process. And this is a terminology thing in uh, in Erlang. A process is not the same thing as an OS process. A process is much, much, much lighter. It's even much, much lighter than a thread. So a uh, 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 Erlang process weighs about one kilobyte. Wow. So and a .NET thread in four O anyway weighs one megabyte.
1: A thousand. <laughs>
0: wow. <laughs> you got a thousand. You got a million. You know. And you just sort of stack those beside each other. But that's not even the big part, you know, so memory. So if people wanted to think about this problem of, of the megabyte, they should go back and listen to your show with Jeffrey Richter.
2: Right. Yeah. Uh, where he talks
0: about this, this sort of drag, this thing that sort of makes the whole thing feel like it's dragging because of this, you know, the, the weight of threads. But there's this other side to it, which I, I, if I remember right, uh, you guys dig into in that show, but the cost of when your context switching between threads is, is pretty significant, right? You know, you've got thousands of CPU operations coming down, just taking care of the whole mess. And you've got you know, just kind of an ugly thing going on. Erlang handles this completely differently. So instead of it dealing with... Th- you never see a thread in Erlang code. You're never doing anything with threads. What you have is this, this thing called a process. And you spawn a process, and that process is there, and it it runs by itself, and it's completely walled off from every other process other than through message passing. And so these processes are isolated, and they're very lightweight. And on my laptop, I can fire up a million processes that are spawning other processes, sending messages back and forth, doing a little bit of logic, and then telling, sending messages back and then shutting down. I can fire up like a million of those, and... Uh, one and a half seconds on my laptop. Wow, a million! And, wow, yeah, and dang. this is not just create it and then die, but this is actually sending each of these processes is coming up and actually sending a message to another process and actually spawning another process. Mm-hmm. So you know, so it's doing work actually. You know, it's really doing something, and it's uh, you get a uh, you know a million of them, and and if you open up the CPU you know, the Process Explorer, you look and you see just this slight little bump across the cores. And it's evenly distributed across the cores, and you know, you see almost no bump in memory <laughs> and so it it's just kind of stunning to see this this happen and uh but but it, you know it's happening <laughs> it's so lightweight and it's so so quick um, so this uh this is possible. Because they're not having to do all this, this, you know, caretaking of, of like, or, uh, you know, making sure shared memory isn't being wiggled around by someone else. Uh, and the way that they're actually balancing across the cores so that you aren't uh, getting this huge penalty from context switches is you basically have, if you have four cores, work is being distributed across those four cores. And this works up to 40 cores. Like, if you have 40 cores, Erlang will scale linearly in performance up to 40 cores. All
1: right, 40 cores. But really, what good is it?
0: <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, okay. My question okay, is, sorry. why that's, 40?
1: That's a joke. I'm yeah. Uh, <laughs>
0: Yeah, so, so 40 is just the the number of the machine that they that they did the benchmark on, and it oh. was linear to that point, and so that's kind of what, the, yeah, <laughs> what they yeah the, where they were running it on. Couldn't
2: you then say it's linear to a hundred? They just the well, it's only uh, uh, been tested to 40.
0: Well, yeah, I, I don't know if you could say that, and I, I, it might not actually even be at that point. I, I'd have to dig in a little bit into the research, but uh, it, there could be kind of hardware things that come in and become a problem at that point. You know, I don't know, but, but I mean, 40 is <laughs> 40 is plenty for me right that's now. That's ridiculous, and, actually. Yeah, it is ridiculous, and nothing else, you think about that, nothing else scales up like that, uh, but so, and on each of these cores, so if I've got my million processes running, they're being balanced evenly across that, which is really cool, but the cost of them working is very minimal, so the way that things are happening, since we have this big operating system, the early runtime system underneath handling this stuff for us, it's quite a bit different than than the way that normal uh, context switching works uh, and scheduling works, so what we have instead is we have... You could look at each process as being kind of a queue of work, and it says, okay, each process you get uh, a number of reductions. And we'll say the number is 2,000. And uh, so so it does 2,000 things, and when it's done, the second process gets 2,000 things, and then the third, 2,000, and then it goes back around the loop back to the first one. And so and none of these processes can block. So okay. if anything blocks... It instantly yields to the next one and then the, and so, and this is happening per, uh, the number of cores. And so you have this very efficient way of just working down work where it's just instantly switching over. And as it does the first operation on the second process, there's basically no penalty for Erlang to jump between this process and do a bit of work here versus this work over here. You know, it's, it's, you know, there's no cost there because it's not having to do this sort of watching of everything. Another interesting thing is, down on each of these processes, they each have their own heap. They have their own stack, their own heap, their own garbage collector,
2: Hmm.
0: and their own mailbox. And so those are the kind of things you get as an Erlang process. And so you think about your job of writing a garbage collector. You know, if if you were applying for two jobs, (laughs) and you are going to write the next generation of garbage collector for .NET or Java, or you have the uh, the coming in and doing maintenance on the Erlang garbage collector... I, you know, I'd be signing up for the Erlang garbage collector job because that job is so easy. Ah. When you look at what it's doing, the the memory is sort of constrained into this little box of the process. There's no shared memory across processes, mm-hmm. and everything's immutable. <laughs> it's like it's like that's an easy job. Yeah. And so you you end up not having this huge penalty that comes along uh, when you have a massive garbage collection comes in. And you just you know systems don't fail because the garbage collector kicked in on Erlang. Uh. uh uh, that which is, is again part of the reliability story and uh and I, I, actually it'd be really cool if uh if oj would jump in and talk about the reliability story uh here and then i'll i could switch off and then talk some about the distribution if you wanted to does that sound like a good plan
2: all right so we pounded on concurrency is reliability the next point to to, to talk about here or distribution really uh, well,
0: okay. We could, we based. could talk about, uh, actually, one of the things that I got tickled about was, uh, uh, this, uh, on this idea of concurrency and sort of the unit, uh, so with Erlang, you're, you're, you're building things up and your unit is concurrency. Like I'm going to code things together that can run concurrently mm-hmm. on a series, like on a lot of the podcasts, uh, that you guys have done. People, anytime people talk about threading, they love to talk about Outlook and they love to beat up on Outlook. And you know, it's like open up Outlook and look, and you get like 200, 200 threads out there, one hundred and fifty threads. And you know, there's everyone loves to beat on it. But the thing is, is what those guys have done is they've they've developed on the on the at the at the unit of concurrency. It's costly. <laughs> you know, they didn't write they didn't write it in the right language. <laughs> yeah. You know, so Outlook, if they had written in Erlang, that would be completely acceptable. You would have almost no cost for having those 200 threads out there, right. and you'd be you'd have a great protection and the security and the safety across you know no guy's going to clobber the other guy kind of thing. But it's like they had a they followed a pattern that they were very comfortable with. It just wasn't the right pattern for the tools that they were working with. It's not a great pattern to follow with C.
2: Just for the record, I was complaining that Outlook had was consuming 65 threads, and none of them were for me.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, and they're all sitting there just doing nothing. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, it's it's a funny, uh, yeah. It, you know, and you're paying for that. It's, bo- it's bogging your
3: system down. Just whatever you do, don't go and write UI applications in Erlang. That's yeah. not a strong point.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well said. Okay. So it, That's
2: a very good point. But it, it oh, makes sense apps. to the idea of shouldn't we be splitting? Outlook has all of these background tasks that it should be doing, and those probably could be coded in Erlang. Does it make sense to develop a good interface between Erlang on the back end and some UI happy language on the front end?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: So what's that relationship look like?
3: Um, It it looks similar to how it looks with with quite a few other languages when you're doing interop. Um, The interop between Erlang and .NET isn't currently a a fantastic story. Mm -hmm. And most of the time you would look to use something that you would use when you're integrating to distinct .NET components that aren't necessarily working on the same machine. And that could be things like uh, protocol buffers or opening sockets or ports or using things like RESTful interfaces. But if you're going to do that within a single application, Uh, similar to outlook um you would probably not take those strategies at all you might use something similar to zero mq which um does a pretty good job of uh of dealing with handling interop across different languages sort of within the same uh the system
1: richard Mm -hmm. guess what time it is must be that happy time again it's the middle of the show. Time to give away a Telerik Ultimate Collection to awesome. one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club who is today Mike Woodhouse. Mike Woodhouse, congratulations. What did Mike win? Mike won a Telerik Ultimate Collection. This is a $2,000 monetary value but a software value of about $7,000 worth of Telerik stuff. And uh, through the goodness of their heart, they want to give one away to a lucky winner. Now, if you don't know what we're talking about, Go to the .NET Rocks page and click on the big Get Free Stuff graphic, and it'll take you to our fan club page. Join the fan club. It's free, and uh, you might win. Every show, we give away something, an ultimate collection, a Grape City power suite, or once a year, we're going to give one lucky member five grand worth of cool technology, handpicked by the Toy Boy. Awesome. Well, congratulations, Mike. Yeah. You're
2: really just talking about some kind of message-passing strategy.
3: Yeah, it, yeah.
2: It sounds abs- to absolutely. me that Erlang is just all about how do you pass messages around.
3: Well, it, it pretty much is. And, and on that point, um, for fear of, of uh, trying to get people to, to chow down on the Kool-Aid as much as Brian and I like to, mm-hmm. message-passing does come at a cost. I mean, if you have a million processes and you want all of them to talk to each other, that's uh, how many copies of the same message are actually going to be created. And right. each one of those processes needs its own copy. So um, th- there's certainly overhead. And, and if you have large messages, that means large, large messages are, are being copied. So you do have to be judicious with what it is that you're passing around. But it certainly makes it easier. And it's certainly a safer approach. So I mean, friends don't let friends share state is, is basically the big deal, right? Right. Um, <laughs> so when it, when it comes to, to interop <laughs> right with, um, with .NET, the, you can shell out. In, in many ways, like you can with, say, C talking to Haskell or Erlang talking to Haskell or Erlang talking to C, and they do have these um, forum function style interfaces that you can use. I mean, there's a little bit of work, to be honest, to get that to happen. Um, I don't know whether you've ever had the joy or pain of trying to fire up an instance of the CLR from C, but essentially you could you can take that approach but I would also argue that um, most of the time, when you're dealing with Erlang and you're trying to integrate that with other languages, it actually makes more sense to invert the relationship, where Erlang is responsible for orchestrating the work that's done in other languages, rather than the other way around.
2: Hmm. So, but Erlang's always the back end service, doesn't this tend to be a UI language kicking off requests back to Erlang?
3: I, I think that's. That's probably a fair generalization to make. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's certainly one that I would recommend people at least starting with. I mean, there are applications out there like Wings 3D, which is a 3D modeling tool. And that from the ground up is written in Erlang and I think it uses the WX bindings for the UI. So it it is possible. Um, I take my hat off to the person who created that because I certainly wouldn't want to to build that level of user interface um, using Erlang. But as I said, it is possible. So I, I would recommend instead of uh, looking at the UI level, certainly looking under the hood, um, particularly in the areas of, of services and services that you don't want to have broken or stopped. Um, that's certainly where it shines.
2: Yeah. I mean, it just seems absolutely apparent to me that we want our back end stuff done this way. It's just a question of who's owning what and where when it comes to the front end language, that what that relationship looks like.
3: A- absolutely. Um, just Just... Moving sort of into the area of, of fault tolerance and reliability, which is where I think my interest is mainly. Even though I do love a lot of the stuff that um, the Brian's just mentioned, mm-hmm. it, it's incredibly hard to kill an Erlang node. There, you have to do a, a lot of work to make Erlang break to the point where the node will die itself. And uh, and a well written Erlang application is almost impossible to break. I and mean, when Mark Brian was talking about the nine nines of uptimes earlier on. I think the reason they say nine nines and not more is because if they say it's a, it's up a hundred percent of the time, then uh, then obviously people are going to uh, call BS. In right. other words, um, but there are systems out there that have been running since the mid '90s that just haven't stopped, and uh, and it's hard to find examples of systems like that in in other languages or with other technology stacks that can claim that level of reliability.
2: Yeah, once they got to the ninth nine, they no longer had a tool good enough to measure for the tenth.
3: Exactly, <laughs> exactly. right. So um, you know, it's for that kind of application, it it really is fantastic. And uh, you know, for me personally, every time I, I restart a service or I have to run IAS reset or something like that, a little part of me dies. I kind of feel that we've had this ability huh. to keep a system running almost nonstop from the early 80s that, uh, that this problem shouldn't exist anymore.
2: Well, the only thing worse than restarting a worker process is not restarting a worker process. That's
3: that's very true. That's very true. Well, having an enterprise restart service do it for you.
2: Yes. And, you know, blue screening the machine is also a way of restarting the worker process, just a bit <laughs> uglier. That's
0: very true. <laughs> OJ, would you like to cover, uh, talk uh, about how the reliability is kind of built up? I mean, like, you know, the select supervisors would be one thing i would be thinking about and maybe the hot code loading Mm, definitely
3: the the reliability thing comes uh, thanks to the patterns and uh, and the framework that brian was talking about earlier on so OTP, which is the open telecom platform is sort of like a mini subset of the of the clr certainly not as general purpose and along with that you have this idea of behaviors and behaviors can be looked at technically in a similar way to interfaces uh, in the .NET world, but they're not actually interfaces. But OTP comes with a set of these that you can um, adhere to and it helps you build well-behaved OTP applications. And and when you do that, what you get is a bunch of tools that make it really easy for your application to, to stay alive. Now, Erlang won't say, hey, things don't break. Erlang actually says everything breaks and it breaks all the time and we just need to know how to handle it so that we can keep going. Let it crash. So, let it crash, exactly. Let it crash, let it crash, crash early and um, and we'll just recover. And so the, the goal there is in recovery. So in Erlang, when you build an OTP application, you have uh, a, a bunch of ideas and one of the most prevalent ones is a supervisor. And a supervisor is literally just a process by itself whose job is to monitor other processes. Mm-hmm. Now, those those processes may be other supervisors. They may be just um, end workers that are doing a piece of work. So a, a classic example of this may be um, in a web service scenario, you'll have a worker process handle uh, a given request as someone connects to the server. So that's a worker process. You may have one process that's responsible for listening on the port so that when a request comes in, it then fires off another process and handles the, hands the workload off to that other process. So there's two different types of processes there. But if, if the, the process that listening on the socket fails for some reason and it crashes, you would need something to make sure that it starts up again. And so that's where your supervisor comes in. So your supervisor might say, I'm gonna monitor the process that's listening on that socket and if it crashes, then here's how I'm going to behave. And you can define that behavior through, uh, through certain kinds of configuration. And, and so, so, what are the options imagine- here?
2: You basically want to launch another process and try again?
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, there's, there's some pretty interesting um, things built in which will allow you to sort of recover some of the work that has been done. And, um, and there's a, a, a linking mechanism between processes, which I'll, I'll talk about in just a minute. But um, essentially, what you're doing is you have you're passing the responsibility of handling failure out to a supervisor or to some other process that was designed specifically to recover or to restart work, and and that's sort of how you approach your app. So you end up with these um, these sort of small trees that look after themselves, and then higher than that you have high-level supervisors and make sure that the trees don't break, and then mm-hmm. so on and so forth, and you can end up with fairly complicated hierarchies of processes, but Despite that complexity, it's actually really simple to maintain because everything's so isolated.
2: Now it sounds like any process I have in Erlang, I'm going to want some supervisor looking at it. Then,
0: oh, it's like uh, well, you do that if you care if it dies. Ah. <laughs> you no, know, I mean, and so that's uh, uh, anything that you might be tempted to use, like a try catch uh, in in C sharp. Uh, you would probably go down the same path of instead of using try catches, you'd use very likely a supervisor watching the worker do the work. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and this is used all throughout OTP and, and, and things even like like file I.O. Uh, you, you get stuff happening down below that you don't even realize is using these mechanisms, but there are all sorts of things around links and monitors uh, where it's using this stuff even for things like file I.O. so that you make sure if something bombs, you have a file closed neatly, <laughs> for example. But uh, but, but so it, basically if it matters, you do is, is the thing.
2: So try-catch becomes try-crash.
0: <laughs>
1: wow. You have a way yes, with words, Mr. Campbell. <laughs>
0: you know, try-catch exists, uh, but it's just not used in the same way. It's not used to the same degree. or uh, You wouldn't use it as often as you would tend to use it in something like, uh, like C-sharp, probably.
1: Surfing the web? Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list like the new feature list for Active Report 6. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support, so that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. makes it a lot more efficient.
2: Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing.
1: Yeah, it's a great product. I, I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active reports from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers.
2: Okay, uh, OJ uh, Brian also mentioned hot code loading. What is that?
3: Uh, hot code loading is it's one of my favorite features of, of Erlang. So if you can imagine when you when you're designing a language or a runtime, and one of the goals of that is to include high availability, you want your you want your stuff running all the time. You'd, if it breaks, you want it to heal. You don't really want downtime. One of the things that you need to cater for is the need to update the code. So everyone, everyone enhances their code all the time, particularly if it's out in production. You need to fix bugs. You might add more features, etc. There's no good in having this incredibly reliable system if when you have new versions of the code that you want to deploy, you actually have to turn that off to upload new code and then turn it back on again because straight away you've got downtime. Now, there are obviously strategies that you can employ around that to make it look like you don't have downtime, but but Erlang, particularly in the world of telecommunications, they didn't want to have to bring those, those nodes down for any reason. So hot code loading is about taking new versions of code and actually placing it inside the Erlang VM while it's still running without Killing off any existing connections or any work that's currently being done. So, in a nutshell, it's loading another code while the code is actually still running,
0: and uh, it's a pretty amazing feature. So you're in the middle of a loop, and you're you're calling module function and passing args. You're in the middle of this your loop, or you're calling over and over in some sort of a recursive. You drop the new code in. And you get the new code the next pass into it, (laughs) which is with with, with nothing dying without stopping. And so it's as code's running, the stack, everything is just passed along.
2: Well, and it sounds like this is just a side effect of this really intense level of encapsulation.
3: It it is. Um, But there's also something built into the Erlang VM, which which supports this. And I I really recommend that your listeners go and uh, Google for something called Erlang the Movie. Which is a, a video contains some really fascinating footage from the '80s of of the, the team of guys that actually built Erlang, and they're demonstrating this hot code loading feature. And it really it does have quite some impact, I think, to anybody, particularly .NET guys, when they demonstrate this thing and uh, and the the way that it works and the, the the way that they they sort of come to this little climax of showing how everything continues to work even they've done even though they've done a hot code load is actually really quite um, entertaining to watch. And and I stole that idea a little bit from Erlang the movie when I did a, a presentation at a local .NET group here. And, and what I showed was I had a music server, a streaming server, which just uh, when a, a client connects using the Shoutcast protocol, it would stream music down, And so I had one laptop connect to the server, and I'd start streaming music, and you could hear the music playing out of that laptop. And then I connected with another laptop that had a, a different clients like Winamp, for example, and that would connect to the server and play for a couple of seconds and then crash, play for a couple of seconds and crash. So so what I demonstrated there was, there was a hard coded bug in the, in the Erlang code that deliberately killed off connections from Winamp. So I, I fired up the code and I showed the, the, um, the guys who were attending and I fixed the bug and I compiled it and then I reconnected with Winamp and everything was fine. And then I turned the volume down and you could hear the other laptop was still playing the original song. So even though while I was doing all this stuff and I was loading new versions of code, the connection that was already in existence with the uh, the other laptop was still playing. And that's managed internally by Erlang because it can, it can maintain two versions of the same module at once. So that hmm. kind of comes out of the box.
1: You know, I was doing a little research on the history of, of uh, functional languages and it. Often cited as the first functional language was this thing called information processing language or IPL from about nineteen fifty six. Do do you, either of you know anything about that?
3: No, I'm not familiar with that. No, I sure don't. Um
1: uh, all it, it was a sort of an assembly like language, but in instead of being procedural, you basically pass data structures around from function to function. So it was supposedly <laughs> cited as the the first functional language, but but, man, they have come a long way since then.
0: <laughs> the, 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 the funny lead-up, uh, you know, we, we, you were talking earlier about distribution, but it, it's funny, like, which order you approach these, because you can look at distribution as being this thing uh, that ties in with the reliability story as well uh, there. You know, uh, the the whole idea of, of having uh, multiple computers, uh, you know, you, you, a lot of times you do that so that if one dies, you know, things stay liable, like you, you end up with still uptime instead of the whole thing going down. You know, there's this ugly time I guess we all went through uh the you know the DNA architecture, you yeah. know, where you'd have these you know, so if if basically if you built that up so you're you had three boxes that were your three tiers, any one of the boxes died there, you had system failure. Uh you know, so that wasn't really the right way to do distributed computing, obviously. Uh but the way that um People that talk a lot about distributed computing approach this, uh, is they say, no masters is the the way to solve reliability. And so you basically have a series of peers that are uh sort of out side by side, they all have the same capability. But if you have like a uh ten boxes and we're we're working as in any language, any normal language like any mainstream language, it's kinda tricky whenever you decide Yeah, I want to distribute some of this work off to another box. I mean, you've got some, you know, like we went from DCOM.
1: (laughs) Oh, God. And
0: then – And then then, – So we go from DCOM, and then remoting comes along and perfects it. (laughs) 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 And then then WCF comes along and makes it so simple that everyone – It's it's sort of a – (laughs) <laughs> and it's, it sounds like it's funny, and we can all kind of laugh about the, the idea of it. But it's a tough problem for those guys to solve.
1: Oh, remoting I mean, is perfect you know, I like you know, WCF is simple. I really,
0: you know, different guys, uh, you know, the Microsoft guys that worked on this stuff. But it's it's really impressive what they've done with the lack of constraints underneath them.
1: Yeah, that's. But instead, that's really. If it. you have
0: this issue, you have this setup of we we're talking about about this uh, this discipline that's forced in, like the immutability, but also the not passing references around to things. Like it becomes very simple to distribute work across different boxes. But the interesting thing is, so I've got a process running on a node on my server. I can fire off, I can create, I can spawn a process on another box and run code on another box, another node on another server, just as easily as I can the one on my own local node. And it doesn't matter if that box is a Windows box, a Linux box, or a Mac. I mean, it's all, so it's an interesting thing. You can create a cluster of 10 Windows boxes 10 Linux boxes and 10 Macs by a series of just one liners. Like, hey, I know about you. They're joined. You form the cluster. You do this thing called net ADM ping. Those two boxes know about each other. Uh, you do a net ADM ping between other boxes and they know about each other. And there's a gossip protocol. So if the first 10 boxes know about each other and the second 10 boxes know about each other and then the third 10 know about each other, if one of those nodes from each one of those sets Learns about the second and third, all 30 boxes are connected together into one big compute cluster that you can distribute work across as simply as if you're doing it local. And and so this is a stunningly simple uh, thing. And I'll have a, by the time that this airs, I'll have a screencast up on, on my blog to, to show just how crazy simple this is. I mean, it's just the one liners and the code doesn't vary. And, and so you're able to do that because in Erlang, there's location transparency, which, you know, it doesn't matter where you're at. It, it, you know, the code is the same, and uh, basically anything is p- being passed by by value. You know, you're having the copies being passed around, and so it just doesn't matter. Even expressions are being passed, serialized and passed along uh, instead of having a reference back to, which is just nutty. So the only simpler. price you're
2: playing to be distributed then is the cost of the network trip.
0: Yes, and so you wouldn't want to be ignorant of reality. Like, you don't want to just say, you know, I'm just going to randomly throw stuff around to different boxes. You know, you'd want to be smart there. Uh, In a lot of systems, uh, one that O.J. has written uh, a driver for, he has a great interop story uh, to tell around REOC, but REOC is, is a great example of taking advantage of the distribution primitives that are there inside of Erlang uh you 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 know there's a sort of the tag of Erlang it says uh, of of Reoc, where it's like you, know, you can go from uh, a server to bigger than Google <laughs> you know just by adding boxes and doing this uh doing this basically net ping they abstract it uh, a level but it's basically doing the same thing and you form a cluster that would be a very hard problem to solve it is a hard problem to solve in other languages they get a lot of that stuff for almost free and they build up on top of it and they add a series of uh of of nice things that are then open source that other Erlang developers can use to uh, to create a ring that's self-healing. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so you have this ring of like a, a, a hundred RIOC nodes, and half of them go down, or you know, chunk of them go down, or whatever. The nodes, the the ring heals itself and and it comes around. And but those are tough, tough problems. Much much simpler with uh, with Erlang and the Erlang runtime system underneath. And these distribution and reliability primitives that uh the reliability primitives that OJ was talking about but uh, so that you know that's kind of this the, the this chunk of these those three things coming together you know that's just so impressive uh you the having multiple boxes in my world has always made things less reliable <laughs> and and concurrency has always made things less reliable but to have them all actually aiming to, to at reliability is pretty interesting
2: and OJ, back in, uh, what was it, September of last year, we talked to Jeremiah Peska about corrugated iron. I remember. Which has a relationship with React, right?
3: Yes. Yeah, so um, I, I started uh, with the idea of, of building a, a .NET driver for React because as, as someone who's a little bit of a React fanboy, I felt that the .NET guys were really missing out on, on getting access to this amazing system because there wasn't a library that was designed to make it really easy for, for the right. guys to, to connect. So um, I I was in the early phases of sort of designing it in my head and playing with some code, and, and I had an email from Jeremiah saying, I was told by the community manager at Basho, Mark Phillips, that, um, that you were looking to build this, are you looking for some help? And he was the kick in the bum that I... Needed, so we uh, we got together and and, um, and yeah, we we bashed it out, and um, we're looking to sort of finalise version one of that at the moment with some some extra capabilities. But that that gave me a pretty decent real world experience of connecting the .NET world to uh, to something very .NET deserving. And uh, and behind the scenes, that um, we have two choices that uh, you can use the RESTful interface that React exposes. And there's a protocol buffers interface as well, and um, for obvious reasons, the protocol buffers interface is substantially faster in uh, in many cases. But there are certain APIs that have to be accessed via REST, and so Corrugated Iron sort of abstracts that, and um, you don't need to worry about about the transport. But um, but that that to me sort of highlighted just how easy it was to talk to an Erlang system, and it really is no different to talking to to any other system, whether it's it's got a RESTful interface or a or a binary interface, um, that the interrupt strategy really isn't any different than when you're connecting to remote .NET components.
2: But it is an interrupt strategy, and I think that's one of the things that people are going to struggle with considering Erlang in the equation. That you you are living in an interrupt world. Why be? I mean, why isn't Erlang a CLR language?
3: Um, I think the reason why. Well, the main reason why it isn't a CLR language is because the, the CLR itself and the design behind it and its inherent sort of object-oriented properties um, make it pretty hard to do the kind of things that that Erlang does on um, on Beam, on the Erlang VM. Now, I, I don't know enough about either of the underlying implementations to, to give you a really authoritative yeah. answer, but I know that there's been multiple attempts to sort of create Erlang on the CLR. I mean, there was a a project a few years back called Erlang.net, which sort of got to a certain point and then and then died. Um, another recent attempt by Microsoft called Axum um, was had some very similar properties or, or goals uh, to Erlang, but again, that has been um has been canned as well. So there, there's there's projects out there that sort of take bits and pieces of, of Erlang's approach, um, such as CCR. And and CCR is actually probably more of an appropriate question amongst .NET people. You might hear questions like, why should I use Erlang over C-sharp? Or why should I use Mm -hmm. Erlang over F-sharp? And and they're two very different things. You you are better off saying, why should I use Erlang instead of CCR? Um, Because CCR is is sort of this abstraction that lets you deal with concurrency in a certain way using ports and, uh, and forcing you to sort of separate your state. But again, CCR only gives you one piece of the puzzle. CCR doesn't give you hot code loading. It doesn't give you supervisor trees and hierarchies. It doesn't give you that level of fault tolerance. What it gives you is the ability to sort of do concurrency at a certain level. Right. Um, so if, if CCR had these other properties, then it would start competing in the space that, that Erlang working in. But at the moment, certainly by itself, it's
0: not capable of doing that.
2: Well, and I'm trying to think of any language that approaches concurrency distribution and reliability like this.
0: I can tell you one story, and this is around Haskell. Mm -hmm. So Simon Peyton Jones, uh, Microsoft Research, he has a paper called uh, Towards Haskell in the Cloud that was written last year. And it would be a really interesting thing uh, for, for anyone listening to just to do a search for that and pull it up. But over and over, he's talking about how they can introduce these qualities into Haskell and they're going at it bit by bit about how Erlang is doing it and then porting over the things. And then he's talking about the difficulties of some of the things that are in Erlang um, that they're, fa- uh, that, that, that it's going to be tough to do in Haskell because of uh, the purity around side effects. Right. But that same problem uh, you know, around side effects, you know, but they, you know, they actually went down this path. And so this is, you know, this is real stuff. There's also a project where Haskell can be compiled to run on the Erlang runtime system. So you have pure interop uh, between modules of, between Haskell and Erlang. Now there's another project uh, attempted a while back. They were going to try to do Haskell.net. <laughs> and uh, this is a research project that just failed. I mean, because everything, every everything that they would do in Haskell, uh, when they would bump up against the CLR, they'd have to put a monad around it. And it was just this miserable experience, you know, because it didn't have the purity underneath. Right. And so that's really the reason you couldn't do these same things. In the CLR, you couldn't have really Erlang on top of the CLR because it um, doesn't—it wouldn't help you along. Because I mean, the magic thing—you could actually probably have a language that had all the properties of Erlang uh, that looked exactly like C Sharp, but it would run on a different runtime system. And you know, so I've got like the big thing where I really like talking about these uh, about Erlang to .NET developers is it gets. Erlang into their mind and the problems it solves. And they and these problems are going to be more and more in their face, mm-hmm. you know, you know, down the road. But so on the one side is that it maybe will help people get out of tough jams. And I've actually worked on projects where I help people get out of tough jams by introducing Erlang, a mix of it in the middle of their other stuff. But another thing is the more .NET developers that are familiar with these concepts, and they understand that, like, okay, if I trade mutability uh, and if I trade... Uh, uh, you know, references where everything becomes a copy. I can get something out of that. And it makes an easier job. Like, so right now, if, uh, you, you can watch on InfoQ, you can watch on different things. You can see Mads, uh, talking, uh, with Joe Armstrong. You can see, uh, uh, Anders Halsberg talking with Joe Armstrong. And then, so, you, you see these different guys, Eric Meyer. You see these different characters, uh, talking on Interverse, uh, Don Simon, uh, and Simon Peyton Jones. You see those guys. And so they all get it. And we've noticed that C sharp is definitely becoming more functional. Mm -hmm. And F sharp makes it into the box. But if those guys said, you know, we're going to turn it off. (laughs) There's no more mutating variables. (laughs) You know, like, uh, great new feature in Visual Studio, da da. Uh, you know, no more mutating variables. And you, you, you can't pass references around. You know, they'd have people storming Redmond with torches. (laughs) You know, people would go nuts. But once people get these ideas in there, in, in their mind, and they see the value out of this, uh, then it makes it easier job for those guys to then deliver these nice features to us and this this power that we're going to need to take on this next decade's problems. Uh, so, I mean, that, that's that's sort of the, the grassroots <laughs> direction that I, uh, I'm i trying to help those guys out with, and, I, and I, I, you know, I don't even know if they even are aware of, of, you know, what we're off doing, but I, you know, hope we can help them because I'd like us to get to a spot where, where Microsoft was able to bring in these ideas into their runtimes.
2: So what, what languages are you guys developing? What tools are you guys using to develop in Erlang?
0: Uh, what tools are we using? Yeah, uh, Different ones. So I use Emacs, and OJ uses Vim. Uh, but, and I do all of my Erlang development on Windows. Okay. I use the same box that I have Visual Studio on I'm using. And so that's uh, that, that's part of this sort of training people up is even showing that it's possible. Like I, I, I would talk to groups of people that are even know that have used they're Erlang developers, and they didn't realize that Erlang ran on Windows. Right. <laughs> and, and then I talked to other Windows people, and they're thinking it's like well, that sounds interesting, but I don't know if I'm really willing to jump into Linux now. And it's like well, it's not. You don't need to. It's un- it has nothing to do with it. And so there's no reason to fight that holy war around an OS to get the advantages of Erlang. So there's there's the interesting thing is. You could look at Erlang, bringing it into your .NET shop in the same way as JavaScript, bringing mm-hmm. it into your .NET shop or SQL into your .NET shop. Yep. And I think that's the healthiest way of looking at it. I mean, people are sometimes freaked out when they hear the word polyglot, but yep. if you know C-sharp and you know SQL, if yep. you know C-sharp and you know JavaScript, you're polyglot. Yep. And so you're, you're picking the right tool for the job, which is this over and over this drum beat that everyone's talking about. And I tell you, that's a nice drum to add into the mix. And it doesn't cost much. It's a really easy thing to integrate in with. It's really easy to write the code in, and so uh, it, it, I think it's an attractive option. It's just one that, that most people until today had never even heard of. Sure, <laughs> well, guys, I think yeah. we're
1: more than running out of time. It's uh, it's been a great show, and let me tell you, I think uh, talking about the you know where Erlang is used very early in the show and establishing the cred was really really important uh i i learned a whole lot just listening so thank you well
3: it's good to uh, hear. Thank thanks you. for
0: having us
1: and where do we get erlang from
0: you go to erlang.org erlang. erlang. and it's a it's an installer There's a, a, a msi installer and uh you just click and you get a wizard and it's on your box <laughs>
3: And the beauty is that the latest version, which is uh, release 15B, actually has native 64-bit support on Windows. Awesome. That's great. Which is cool.
1: All right, guys. Thanks again. It's been wonderful. Thank you for having us. Thank you. You bet. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Floralsite.com. .net Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. Got transmitter banned by the FCC, and I'm a.